You're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Georgetown. For more information about Redeemer Georgetown, connect with us on social media or check us out at www.redeemergeorgetown.com. The reality of time passing by quickly, uh, it starts to hit hard for me as a dad who is about to launch kids into young adulthood. You know, you, you feel this sense of, did I invest well? Did I plant the seeds well? Because they've been in my house now these many years, and they're about to launch out of my house into the world, and I have this nagging sense that I wish I could do again some of the things that I felt were such a high priority. But that feels a little bit like brushing your teeth really hard before going to the dentist the morning of your visit. It's a little late. I mean, it won't hurt anything to have fresh breath, but you're probably not going to fix anything by that vigorous brushing. Well, there is something I want more than anything for my kids. There is a gift that I would give them with all of my heart above any gift. I mean any gift. Once they're saved, this is the one thing I want more than for them to have a beautiful or handsome spouse who loves God and loves them. I want this more than I want them to have a great career. I want this more than anything else. This gift, if I could give to my children, would be the greatest gift I could give them. That is the gift of prayer. Above anything else, a vibrant healthy prayer life. That's what I would give them. And if, it would, if I would give that to them as their dad and their pastor, I promise you the same heart that beats in me as a father also beats in me as a pastor on your behalf. I want you to learn to pray. It is the greatest gift God has ever given me as a follower of Christ was to learn the power and the gift and the joy of prayer. We as a church have been at this long enough, and maybe you've been at this long enough to know that when you bring up the subject of prayer, a lot of people feel very defeated, very discouraged. They feel it is something they are failing at and they feel guilty about. I don't think God wants you thinking like that. I know he doesn't want you to think like that. He wants you to know the great gift that it is and the great responsibility and power that is there in prayer. You know, the disciples never asked Jesus to teach them how to cast out demons, how to preach, how to do miracles. They never asked him for that, but they did ask him, teach us to pray. They didn't say teach us a prayer, teach us how to pray. And over the next seven weeks, I intend to do that for you. I intend to share with you the gift of prayer and how to do it because I didn't know how to. I can tell you that in my first church, I was plodding along. In fact, I would say that plodding along was kind of a strategy in life for me. I was never going to like really rise above the crowd because of my incredible good looks. That wasn't going to get me there. Uh, my 
athletic ability wasn't going to let me rise above the, the crowds. My uh, amount of money was not going to get me there. Even my intellect, I knew I was somewhere north of 50%, and I was somewhere near the 75% mark. Unless I went to College Station, I'd shoot right up into the top brackets or something like that. But otherwise, I knew that even my intellect wasn't going to get me there, but I could do this, and I did do this. I just plotted. Just kept going, right? Just put your head down, work hard, and don't stop. And that'll get you there. That'll beat most people most of the time. And so that became a strategy of life for me. And I, and I worked and worked and worked and just didn't quit. And I could find that in those times of stress, that if I would just have that attitude of keep trying and keep gritting it out, I could get there. And so I got through high school that way. I got through the University of North Texas. I don't know how I did it, but I stuffed a four-year degree into five years, I, I made it, you know, and I, I got through that, and then I got to Dallas Seminary, and I just kept on going. I just kept grinding it out. Then I got to my first church, Legacy Bible Church in Sherman, Texas. Great church. One of our great supporters financially of this church. Uh, Michael's been there with me uh, when I preached there a couple years ago. I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful church. It's a wonderful church. But it started out a complete chain, train wreck. Before I got there, about probably six months before I got there, there were two different groups that had left discontent-like from their other churches. One was a Bible church. One was a Baptist church that they felt was kind of getting too charismatic. And so they left. And the, the group that wanted to do small groups was coming from the Bible church, and the other ones that wanted to do Sunday school were coming from this group. And they, this is what we called church planting back in the days. You get ticked off, you and a group of your friends, and you start your own thing. And that's what they were doing. And they were good people, and they didn't have the shepherd and the shepherding that they needed. And so what they did have was a pretty solid amount of money. Uh, they were wealthy. And so Fresh out of seminary, I had a friend who had been there coming there on Sunday mornings just preaching. He'd come, he'd show up, he'd show up when the music was stopping, he'd walk onto the stage, preach, and leave. <laughs> and that's kind of what, for him, like, come on, man, let's just get to the Bible. That's what we need to do. And he's like, hey, Robert, they want me to be their pastor. I'm not going to do it. Why don't you come? And I was like, yeah, I mean, I'm a new father I'm still kind of a new husband, and I need to provide for my family. And so that's what I did. And the church just started to grow. I mean, it just started to grow. I think within the first year, we were 200-something, and within the third year, we were 300-something. It just started to really grow, and, and with that came a lot of money. I mean, when you, you may or may not know this, but when a church has growing attendance and a lot of money, everybody says, good job, everybody. And so I felt relatively affirmed, but the problem was this. Those two groups still had a core inside them that was fighting against each other and pulling me, pulling me. I'd go to lunch over here and, and, and I'd hear an agenda. And I'd, I'd go to dinner over here and I'd hear another agenda. And it wasn't long before my people-pleaser nature started to get very insecure, very insecure, very frightened, honestly. Though we were growing and we had money and we had all of that, 
I had an increasing sense of insecurity about my position in the church and whether or not I'd be able to continue being the pastor of that church. And this is where it all came to a head. I got so exhausted that I just, I was going to go on vacation with my family. We we're going to drive to Florida, where my mom lived, in Orlando. And we were going to spend about 10 days. But in the middle of that 10 days, Monica, Hope, and Grace were going to fly to upstate New York, where they were going to do a little thing with her family. And I said, okay, in the middle of that little, I'm going to do what the church has now asked me to do. Here's what they wanted me to do. We need to build a building, and we want you to lead us into the building campaign. And every time I sat down to work on that, I had nothing. You ever tried to give when you're on empty? I'm, I'm sure you have. When people are needing something from you and you're utterly convinced that you don't have it, and, and it's a pretty depressing and sinking despairing thing when I've got a church that's saying, hey, we got money, we got people, lead us into a building campaign. And every time I sat down to try to do anything with it, it was as if I had never done anything of consequence in ministry before. I felt so overwhelmed and I felt discouraged and I felt so inadequate. And I remember it was July the 8th, 2006. <laughs> now you go, how do you know that? 17 years ago, coming up here in July. How do you know it was July the 8th, 2006 that something changed? Something radical changed in me. Well, I know that because I've always loved the UFC Tito Ortiz was gonna fight Ken Shamrock for the second time and it was a Saturday and I couldn't wait. And all day long, I felt this happening in my soul, that God was at my elbow saying, come with me, come. Put aside everything else. Your family's gone, I've got you to myself. Put it all aside and come and spend a little time with me. And I blew him off all day. It wasn't that I didn't talk to him. I just didn't go with him anywhere. I didn't stop the, the chaos. and the, I, did, I just didn't go. And I remember after that UFC fight was over, I felt, oh, I'm sorry, God. What about tomorrow? Are you still interested in meeting with me? So then on July 9th, 2006, I got up that morning, and here's what happened. I went for a walk. And I prayed. And I started off with something like this. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't think I can go any further. I want to go do something else for a living. If this is what ministry is, I don't want to do this. That's how my prayer started. And I'm walking, just walking one morning on a Sunday morning when I normally would have been preaching in Sherman, Texas. I'm in Orlando, Florida, and I'm walking and I'm telling God, I don't want to do this. And here's what I feel the Lord said to my soul. Why don't we talk about it? Why don't you tell me about it? Why? And I confessed in broken words how insecure I was about people liking me, how worried I was about providing for my family, how much I felt inadequate to lead anything and as I walked and prayed, the weight of the world came off of my shoulders that day. 
I didn't even, I would not have even known to call that prayer. Somehow it was bigger and better and more mysterious than that. I was unloading my soul to God who cared about me. And I said to him, after it was over, I said, can we do this again tomorrow? Would it be all right if I just come back and start to pray and talk to you and share my heart with you? And that day, the Lord changed my life as a Christian Listen, I'd led many Bible studies by that point. I had been to seminary. I had started and led a church. I'd preached lots of sermons, but I had not learned that there is something powerful. There is something good that God wants to give his children. And it's more than just come and get saved and go to heaven someday. God wants to give you himself. Weary Christian, come home. Do you hear me? Because I want you to know, this is for you, and this is for me. The invitation for all who are weary and heaven laden to come to him and he will give rest is not just to some sinner out there somewhere, it's to you and to me. Now some of you thought, what a peculiar passage you read from 2 Samuel chapter 14 to talk and introduce prayer. And I want to tell you what is happening in this passage. Absalom, the son of David, he has had a sister terribly, awfully mistreated by another brother. And in due time, Absalom took revenge on this brother and killed him. And because he killed him, Absalom had to go into hiding in a place called Geshur. He had to go away from Jerusalem and live in exile because he was afraid, because he was guilty. After a couple of years living in exile, a man named Joab, the commander of David's army, said to David, I think you missed your son and I think he misses you. Let me go get him and bring him back. And so Joab goes and he finds Absalom and says, hey, the king misses you. The king wants you to come home. And so Absalom gathers up all of his stuff and he comes home and David says, let him come home to Jerusalem, but do not let him see my face. He can come home and he can have the life of a prince. He can have a nice house. He can have servants. He can have fields to plow. He can have all of that. There's one thing he cannot have my face. Can't have that. And so when we pick up 2 Samuel chapter 14, I want you to hear this. And I want you to engage your mind's eye in the words that Absalom lived in Jerusalem for two full years. So what? He's there for two full years. He can't go into the king's presence. Two full years is a long time. When you got seven feasts a year that are celebrated as family and you are Absalom being told, hey, you can come home, but you can't see the king. There's a boundary for you. Remember what you've done. Remember the, the pain you've caused, the sin you've committed. And so you can come home, you can have your house, your servants, your fields, you can have all that, but you can't have David's face. And so Absalom being a crafty man, says, well, I'm going to send for Joab. Joab, the commander who came and got him, blows him off completely. So Absalom tries again. Joab blows him off a second time. Absalom says, you know what? 
I'm going to try a new tactic here. His fields are next to mine. Burn them down. Now, <laughs> you could burn the whole city down doing that. But Absalom is in such a dark place that he says, I don't care. Burn those fields down. And then Joab miraculously shows up and does a house call. So Absalom's thinking, yeah, you're going to ignore me? Well, guess what? My father's been ignoring me too. I know because I have been brought out of exile that I'm being still held up by this sin that is hanging over my name and my, my presence, and I can't come into the king's presence because of that. And what I want to know is why did I come from Geshur? If you had me in exile, and I was fine there. You brought me here, but you didn't bring me all the way home. And I want to know why did I come out of exile? Because it wasn't for houses. It wasn't for servants. It wasn't for food. It was for him. Now, I want you to hear this. Absalom says, either you send me in front of him and he can kill me, or he can give me full access. Now, friends, this is the heart of prayer. Why did God save you? Did he save you just to bring you into streets of gold someday? Did he save you so that you could have a mansion in heaven all of that's coming, but guess what? He saved you because he loves you. He saved you because he wanted you in proximity, face to face with him. He wanted more than just to get you to heaven someday and bless you along the way until you got there. He wanted you in his heart every day interacting with him, knowing him, loving him, and overflowing in love to the place where you live, your sphere of influence. He didn't save you just to get you all the way to heaven but never have a relationship. He saved you for himself. And he did this through his son. When Absalom says, give me full access or give me the death penalty, here's what I hear. Jesus took the death penalty so I can have full access. Why would I not take him up on that? Why would I live in such a way that my life, filled with all kinds of insecurities and self-reliance and all of that, why wouldn't I just come fully home and say to him, Father, it's not enough that you would save me for heaven someday. You have saved me for yourself, and I have lived as content to just have the stuff. I want you. I want you. The heart of prayer is that God would come and draw you in, draw you near, and it is an incredible gift. And I want you to see that as a gift. I want you to see prayer for what it really is. Why was Jesus always sneaking off to go and pray late at night after a full day? Why would he sometimes pray all night long? I'm convinced the reason he did that was not because he had to confess sin. <laughs> it, he didn't have any sin to confess. He was doing it because he wanted to draw near to the one he loved most, to feel the joy and the strength and the clarity that would come from just being near his father. We live lonely lives. We live frail lives. We live anxious lives. 
when you learn to pray, those things are not going to vanish overnight, but you'll at least have them in the presence of Almighty God who has made you for himself. And they won't feel nearly as big and they won't feel nearly as heavy when you learn to carry into the presence of God your fears and insecurities, your hopes, your dreams. And that is what's going to draw you deep into the heart of the Father. Not hopes of heaven someday. You're going to get that, okay? You're going you're to get all of that. That's not the gift. The gift is him. And so as we learn to pray, I want you to know that this is not a task that you are failing at that you need to feel guilty about. It's not some heavy thing that you need to be succeeding at for God to go, oh, well, good, finally. No, it's a gift. And so that's why in Matthew chapter six, when Jesus starts to teach the disciples about prayer, this is what he says. He says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by others. I say to you, truly, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So what's he saying? Before we get to what prayer is as a gift, I want to tell you, one of the things it's not is a hypocritical performance. And let me tell you how this plays out in my life. Every now and then I'm with a group of pastors, really brainy pastors who pray as if in old English. These and thous. I mean, it's just so eloquent. It's just so good. And I'm like, man. And then someone will go, hey, Robert, could you pray for us? And I'm trying to drum up some old English. And I'm trying to sound good. I remember at my first retreat in college that I went to, it was a place called Pine Cove. And I'm there around a campfire the second night, and everybody's praying spontaneously. I'm brand new at this old Christian thing. I wouldn't been a Christian very long. And uh, I remember thinking, man, I'm going to step out there. I'm going to pray out loud. Now, this was a big thing for me. And I prayed some of the effect of, Father, I just want to say thank you for the new friends that I've made here this weekend. It's really a gift because I didn't come here knowing anybody, and I'm thankful. And I mean, I hadn't prayed, I hadn't stopped praying for two-tenths of a second from that some girl from across the campfire over there said, and God, we're not here to make friends. We're here to meet you. And we're so glad that you're here and you're our friend. And I thought, oh gosh, why did I pray that dumb prayer? That's how it felt in my soul in that moment. It was, dang it, I'm never praying out loud again. This didn't work for me. I have learned something that when you go to pray, sometimes the ears of someone less than God feel weightier to you and you want to say to them what you think sounds godly and appropriate. And it is a beautiful thing when someone starts to pray and it is very clear they are talking to the Father. You might be overhearing this, but they are talking to the Father. And Jesus says, when you pray, don't pray for the ears of people. Don't try to sound fancy. Don't try to sound appropriate or godly or any of that. Pray. Talk to me. What else does he say? 
When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles, as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. Your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, I know the wheels start churning with this, but let me just say this. He also says, you don't need to be saying heaped up words, repeated phrases that mean nothing. Where your brain goes on autopilot and all you're doing is repeating words that have no meaning to you, but because you've said them repetitively, you feel that you have said these prayers in discipline quite a bit and God might need to owe you because you said this prayer 10 times and that prayer four times. Friends, he's not interested in you repeating phrases. In fact, this prayer, this model prayer, is really a lesson in how to pray more than it is a prayer. It is a set of ideas and truths about who God is, that if you could see it like this, it's like entering a multi-level house. And every single phrase is like a room in that house that as you sit in that room with that phrase, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. These phrases, these truths about God, open your heart and mind. And then they lead you into your kingdom come. Because I've prayed this, God, I want to pray, let your kingdom come. And then you move up into let your will be done. And it all starts to flow together. And he doesn't need you just to repeat phrases. That's not prayer. He knows what you need before you ask. Now, the natural question is, why does he want me to talk to him then if he already knows what I need? You remember we talked about covenantal membership? We talked about not just having a contract. See, God's not just going to trade with you. Well, you know what I need. You know I need this, so give it to me. Well, if you already know that, then why do I need to talk to you? Because I want a relationship with you. Because I want you to draw near to me and experience the gift of grace that is prayer. And so as we start into this, I'm going to help you. I'm going to teach you what God has taught me about prayer. And here's some of what I want you to know. Prayer is a gift, but it's also a mystery. It's a mystery. Those who know prayer best describe it as a mystery. So read George Mueller, the greatest man of prayer after the apostles, in my opinion. George Mueller describes prayer as something that he can't quite define. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary in China, same thing. They were contemporaries. Prayer is more than just talking to God. It, it's like if I said to you in a house that you lived in for a long time, it's just a bunch of bricks. It's just a bunch of windows. You'd say, it is that, but it's so much more. It's like a place that became home to us, almost like a member of the family. And people go, what are you talking about? It's more than a house. It's a home. Okay, prayer is more than talking to God. It's a relationship. And as you listen to men like Charles Stanley, who just passed this week, and there's some things I don't agree with Charles Stanley about. He's right on prayer. Jim Cimbala is right on prayer. I don't agree with him on a lot of things, but I'm telling you, that man knows prayer. 
And as they describe prayer, they'll say things like this, prayer, whatever it is, and then they'll start to unpack prayer. And I think what they're trying to say is this, this mysterious thing that God is at work doing as you pray is not that you're getting him into some position where he's going to give you what you want. He is bringing his image to bear in you just by being in prayer, just by spending some time alone with him. God is at work shaping a new creation in you that looks like Jesus. And it's glorious. And it's so life-giving. Prayer is a mystery. I think that whatever was lost in the garden would be hard for us to understand. Michael has spoken on this, I think, better than almost anybody I've ever heard, where he speaks about they were driven away from this place called paradise. What did they lose there? Well, they lost innocence. We know that. They lost paradise You and I and our greatest imagination of what that is probably aren't even getting anywhere close. They lost that. They lost community with God and with each other. How do you you understand what was lost in the garden? Well, I can tell you this. Prayer is like snapshots of Eden. Okay? Hear this. If prayer is a reconnection is a deepening of your relationship with God. It is snapshots of Eden. It is where you find that your innocence is not in you. It's in Christ. You have been forgiven in Christ. You can be unarmed in front of him and still safe. We call that fully known and fully loved in this church. Well, you won't feel that in the world, but you'll feel that in prayer. You can be unarmed in front of God. You will find community with God, deepening a sense of who you are. And if I were to tell you that I have in my house a secret room, that if you go through this door and then you walk down this pathway, it will lead you into Eden. It's a magical pathway into Eden. All you got to do is come over, open this door, walk down this hall, and you will walk into Eden. Any takers? Anybody? You go, hey, man, come on. I, can I go? Can I, can I go spend some time? And I have a feeling that as you start to pray and understand the gift that prayer is, you will find yourself saying, can I do this again? Can I, not that I have to, not that I'm demanded to. I, I want to go and spend time with my creator alone. Refilled, reignited. Prayer gives you that, and that's why it's a gift, but it's also great comfort for this reason. Prayer gives three things that are pretty important here that gives clarity, it gives peace, and it gives comfort. And I want to unpack all of those. There was um, our, our honeymoon, you know, Monica and I are celebrating 25 years. We're about to go on a trip this summer. But I remember our honeymoon in Maui. <laughs> and we're just young, silly kids, you know, at that point. We wanted to go see it all, right? So one morning we decided we were going to take the little snorkeling trip out to Molokini. It's this little moon-shaped island. And they said, hey, just make sure you're here early. Cause, and you need to make sure you eat before you come. So we're going to be out there a long time. 
No problem, buffet is kicking, so I get up early, man, and I'm shoveling down that buffet, <laughs> just enjoying that Maui buffet. Big mistake, I'll tell you why. I'm about to get on a boat. And here's what that boat did for three hours. Up, down, back, forth. Up, down, back, forth. It started to shake me up like a milkshake. <laughs> and here's what I kept thinking. I want something solid. I don't have sea legs. I'm not used to this. And everything in me is tired of the motion that is going on around me. What I want is I want to get somewhere where this movement stops. Friends, you don't have sea legs in this world. You need a solid, unmovable anchor in your life that doesn't rise and fall with the tide. It stays fixed, and you get to stand sure. And prayer gives you that. As you pray, there is a clarity that comes to you about what is really happening in your life. You can't make sense of your circumstances and the effect of your circumstances on your heart and mind. You can't discern that apart from God. And as you pray and as you read the word of God and the truths of God start to saturate your soul, you are going to find that there is a clarity that feels unmovable. I know Maybe not all, but I know in this moment what is true and what is right. I don't know what I'm supposed to do a month from now or even two weeks from now, but right now, God has given me clarity, stabilizing me, stabilizing me. When the wind is blowing against me, when the storm is blowing against me, prayer brings me into a place where I feel like I can step off that boat for a few moments and I can sit on solid ground and say, God, thank you. Thank you. It's such a gift to sit here with you. You're solid and unmoving. See, it will also be comfort to you in that God allows storms into your life for a purpose. For a period, he will allow storms into your life that you can't buy your way out of. No amount of money is going to make it better. You can't retreat and go back because that's not an option. You could try. It won't work. I've tried. I'm speaking from experience here. You can hunker down and wait for it to go away, okay? That's not going to work either. This storm is in your life, and there's no changing that. God has allowed that because as Hosea chapter 2, verse 14 says, I brought you into the desert so that I might whisper love to you. I brought you into this wilderness because I wanted you to find your comfort in me. Not in your money, not in your friends, not in your willpower to keep going, keep working. See, the problem with me early on in my church ministry was that it had always worked to just keep trying, just keep going. And this time it wasn't working. It just wasn't working. It nearly crushed me because that had been my go-to, just, just keep going. And now it wasn't working. And God said, that's exactly right, Robert. I don't want that to be your salvation. I am your salvation. Draw near to me. Find rest in me. 
And so God will bring you into a dark, difficult place. Why? Because he wants to be your comfort. He wants to be your soft place. He wants to be the one who nurtures you, holds you close. So it will bring comfort and then it will also bring you peace. How many of the epistles start with these words? Grace and peace. Grace precedes peace. If I've lost peace and I have no peace, I gotta go back to grace. Father, remind me again that it was nothing in me that was beautiful, it was all your choosing and it was all the merit of Christ and that's how you saved me. Remind me of that because sometimes I got on a treadmill of, of works. I got a treadmill of how, how can I make this better? How can I, for me and for my loved ones, how can I fix this? Because I need everybody to have peace. I need them to feel secure and safe and I need peace. Look for grace. Go back to the Father and say to him, remind me again who you are. Remind me what you have done. Lamentations chapter three, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Listen, friends, I started memorizing that because I wanted that in my head. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, and therefore I will hope in him. It is good, <laughs> he says, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. God is good to those who seek him, to the soul that seeks him. He's good to those who wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. Listen, all of these things that God is willing to give you are sitting there waiting with God in a posture of, please, come, this is yours. There's such good comfort and peace and clarity in prayer. Why would we leave that sitting on a table somewhere? What did David say in Psalm 27, verse four? One thing I have asked, and this I will seek. I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. You know what David's saying? This house called prayer, I wanna live in it. I wanna stay there. I wanna be there at all times. Oh God, would you let me stay close to you all the days of my life? And so as we start into this gift of prayer, I want you to know also that prayer is the most powerful and effective thing that you can do. <laughs> it's the greatest gift you'll ever receive. No, no question about that. It's also the most powerful and effective thing that you can do. I have never in my life, in all my years of ministry, felt more certain that I was effective than when I'm in prayer. Not preaching, not leading or organizing anything, no. Not raising funds for anything. I have never felt more convinced that I was doing the work of God and quite honestly, destroying Satan's plans. I've never felt more convinced that I was doing that when I, than when I'm praying. When I pray, it's like 
sitting behind the controls of a wrecking ball. I always wanted to do that. I think everybody quietly wants to do that. But man, come on, guys. If you had a chance to take the controls of a wrecking ball and you could swing that big old wrecking ball at something, that'd be a lot of fun, wouldn't it? And you wouldn't want to swing it like a card table. You want to swing it at You'd want to swing it at something big so you could watch it fall. Well, guess what? When you pray, you have more ability to affect change in your life, in the life of your loved ones, in your community, in your home, than anything else you can do, by far. Blaise Pascal has this great quote. God gave us prayer so that we could have the dignity of causality. God has given us prayer so that we might have the dignity of causality. Like, man, that's brilliant. You know what he's actually saying? You can do a lot of things by just willpower, by purchasing power, but you can do a lot more to cause change, causality, when you pray. I don't know how God in heaven hears the prayers of some woman alone in her room or some man walking down a street. I don't know how that affects the future. I know this, that God has called us to pray and somehow our prayers affect change at a level that we could never imagine by using money, by using personality. God has given us prayer so that we might have the dignity of causality I think this is absolutely true, that Satan laughs at a wealthy church. He laughs at a relevant church. He laughs at a well-programmed church, and he trembles at a church that prays. One saint on their knees before God or on a lonely, quiet road praying, one saint praying is enough to cause him great terror. I am sure of that. You know the the story of Mary of Scotland, the queen, the the Bloody Mary queen. If you go in the bathroom, turn off the lights, look in the mirror and all that. You know, she said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. She knew that that man's prayers could have more impact in the world than all the armies of Europe. And she was terrified of them. And I want you to know that when you're frightened, there are things that God has allowed you to be frightened of so you'll learn to pray. It's in Matthew 14 where Jesus says this type, this type of demonic force only comes out through prayer. The only way to move them is through prayer. We need to learn to pray We need to learn to carry our burdens in front of the Lord because God is using that dependence that you're learning on him to teach you to love him. God isn't just after you depending on him. God is after you loving him. And you will learn to love him when you learn to depend on him. See, it's no good. (laughs) He loves you too much to ignore your self-reliance. Now, this is where it can get very challenging, right? You don't even know how you're relying on yourself. You don't even know the ways in which, and I don't either, the ways in which we live with practical atheism. We just do what seems right to us without even involving God in it. 
And yet he is such a good father, such a loving father. And my hope over the next six weeks is that you will find yourself saying this, I want to learn to talk to you, God. I want to learn to depend on you, God. I want to draw near to you. I want to know what prayer is. I don't want to feel beat up and ashamed of myself for not being good at it. I want to learn how to do it, and I want to learn how to make it a priority in my life because it is the greatest gift I'll ever know, and it is the greatest, most effective, most powerful thing that I can do to affect real change. And so that's my hope and my prayer. My grandmother, when I was a little boy, my mom's mom, love her so much. At her funeral, she wanted this song to be played. What a friend we have in Jesus. I started looking for this song. <laughs> and you know what I kept looking for? Take it to the Lord in prayer. That's what I thought the name of the song was. I, you know, it says, take it to the Lord in prayer. Turns out the song is actually called, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. <laughs> it didn't just pray. It's, do you know how much he loves you? Do you know how much he longs for you? He's jealous for your attention? Listen to these words. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Now listen to this. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful? Who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do thy friends despise, forsake thee? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms he'll take and shield thee. Thou will find a solace there. Many years ago when I was filling up my truck at the gas station, white van pulls up next to me, a couple of guys in it. They roll down the window, hey, you want to buy some speakers? I'm like, no. Okay. And I said, hang on a second. I always assumed you guys were thieves. You steal these speakers? And they start laughing. You want to buy them or not, buddy? Now, this is a, you guys ever had something like this happen? Mike, you ever arrest somebody for doing this kind of stuff? I mean, these guys pull up, and, and, and uh, he's about to drive off. I said, wait, wait, wait. Do you know Jesus loves you? They start laughing at each other. Whatever. And I said, hang on. Do you know what you're leaving on the table right now? You came up to me to sell me speakers. I don't want them. But I want you to know there's a God in heaven who sees you driving around in this van. He sees your life. He cares about you. He loves you. He'll forgive you. And he'll take you home. And he'll be with you every moment between that moment and this. Come on. They laughed and they drove off. I'm utterly convinced as I stand here today, at least one of those dudes will see me in heaven and go, hey, I'm the guy in the van. 
I'm the guy in the van, remember? <laughs> yeah, I remember. You're a sermon illustration too, buddy. But I tell you what, the Lord is in a posture of leaning in to say, this sermon wasn't for everybody. This was for you. You weren't stopped at the gates of Jerusalem and told you can come only so far. You can have all your stuff, but you can't have me. Our father said to us, come all the way home. All the way home. Live with me every day. Find your solace there. Pray with me.